0: This is Lita Barry and I'm a regular contributor writer to White Hot Magazine and a host of this podcast along with Lawrence Fuller, who will be co-host in this episode. We're here in the studio with Enrique Martinez Salaya, who has just taken us on a wonderful tour of his new paintings and works in progress for upcoming exhibitions. He currently has an exhibition in Cuba, his home country, at the Musee Nacional de...
1: Bellas Artes.
0: There we go, you're going to do it. Okay, which opened on February 15th. And after this, he will be having a number of exhibitions at the Hispanic Society Museum and Library in New York, which will then be shown at Utah in Los Angeles. UTA. Yeah. UTA. Yeah at Hood Art Museum in Dartmouth and exhibitions, uh, you're speaking at the Metropolitan Museum and at the Wendy Museum in Los Angeles. So, good to talk to you Enrique.
1: Good to talk to you. And Lawrence. Always.
0: The reason I wanted to bring Lawrence along uh, today because when we first met, Uh, You were one of the artists that he raves about and, of course, he's a poet and he responded, I think, to the visual poetry in your work. So I thought it'd be fun if we all talked about the relationship between art and poetry.
1: Sounds great. Okay,
0: so Enrique, um, what drew you to these different areas? And, of course, you have physics as well.
1: Um, I think for me, the interest was always trying to understand the world better. Um, in some manner. That's why I study physics, that's why I made paintings, that's why I read and wrote. Um, and, and I think that's still the reason why I do it. I was interested in these different ways to approach inquiry and the question of understanding and truth and so on. So it hasn't changed, the reason really.
0: And Lawrence, you're interested in both art and in poetry? But you he's an actor too.
2: Well, I think that both poetry and painting have in common um, uh, symbols that respond to the imagination in ways that uh, logic can't reach, sort of like a language of dreams. And and there was something instinctually I think I was drawn to your painting that um, that spoke to that specific area of the imagination, more so than any painter that that comes to mind um, and the way that symbols interact in the visual language of your work i think is almost exactly the same as reading a poem and um, the way that those those sort of little scenes exist as well like you know right here there's a dead French, but i'm remembering in an exhibition of yours that I saw at L.A. Louvre there was an installation of a boy and it had were they finches or doves that were coming in and out of the boy within this cage? It,
1: uh, finches, yeah. Finches, yeah.
2: And actual finches. And the, and that installation just sort of lives you know uh, rent free in my, in my imagination quite happily. Um, so yeah, I think the The enjoyment of of the way that these characters and things interact within your world gives a lot of space for ideas to sort of vessel themselves in like a Trojan horse into the imagination.
1: That's interesting, yeah. I I mean, the same thing happens to me with the work of other people. and in some ways within my own work I mean I think part of the reason the work exists is to create spaces in which I myself can go into Um, because I'm the maker doesn't mean that I remove for myself the mystery and the questions of it in some ways the only works that I allow to survive are those whose secret I'm circling around but I cannot ultimately um, uh, remove the secret always stays.
0: When you read poetry, and particularly poetry which, you've, which has inspired you in, in a number of your paintings from Virgil, T.S. Eliot, do you imagine them as paintings? Or is it do you start a painting thinking about a poem and go back to it?
1: You know, in some ways it's neither of those oh. um, because I don't use poetry as content for my work, which is typical. Oh. For example, when, I, when people say Albert Pink and Writer use um, Hugo's work uh, to create his paintings, you, it literally means that the imagery of the work comes from the poems. And that's typically okay. that's typical the way people use poetry. For me, I use poetry in my work as exhortations of a certain emotional space, a certain register, a certain level of quality of experience. And so the poetry becomes a standard of thought and feeling Mm -hmm. in a very abstract sense. So when I read, for example, Mario Benedetti or T.S. Eliot or something Um, it it reveals to me two things, a certain world uh, that I'm interested in because it's charged and there's a certain truthfulness to it. But also it reveals a level of engagement with the world and with the material that I would like to aspire to in my work as opposed to letting my work have very trivial aspirations. So that's how I use poetry.
0: I like that idea. So you're aspiring to the condition of poetry,
1: in a way? Well, I'm aspiring to the condition of the best poetry.
0: Of the best poetry. Because
1: there a lot of bad poetry. Is also no, I was good. just
0: thinking John Ruskin, who Lawrence, I'm sure you know, he's very famous for saying that um, all art aspires to the condition of music. That's what I was just thinking. So poetry for you is the highest?
1: Well, see, one of the reasons that I never use the word like music or art or poetry yeah. is because within those fields of those areas, they're terrible things. So when yeah. we say all art aspired to the condition of music, he better be talking about the best music. Because yes, there's that's some right. really bad music. That's right. So we can when people talk in those general terms, they mean nothing to and, them. And so because to me it's always very specific.
2: Mm-hmm. And also, you know, John Ruskin said that um, despite our despised music, but Voltaire said that poetry is the music of the soul.
0: Yeah, there you go. I, I don't. I can't separate them. They overlap. I mean, there's poetic painting, and there's great poetic painting. But um, there is. There's a lot of poetry for me, which is very visual, and I think of. Poets and writers who almost paint with words or create images with words. Yeah, I, I think mean, Heidegger,
1: Heidegger has a has a a phrase that I like very much in this conversation. He said idea that poetry aims. I mean, he doesn't say aim, but I I am adding that to it to the to the foundation of truth. And I yeah. so my approach and view of poetry Mm -hmm. is related to truth much more than to music, much more than to... Yes. Because one of the things that I dislike about much poetry is that when people say something is poetic, what they immediately mean by that is a certain kind of floweriness, a certain (laughs) kind of ornamental quality, a certain kind of surprising Mm -hmm. images. And I don't like surprises, I don't like flowery, um, so, so I'm, in, I'm interested in, in a certain starkness, and a, a certain stripping away, which is what the best poets can do, they can strip away a lot of the fluff.
0: Yeah, great poetry is almost like a distillation, isn't it? It's very concentrated. And I've noticed that people who clearly do not read great poets will say, oh, their, their writing is poetic and they do just mean it's obfuscated and flowery and clutted. Right?
2: right. Um, yeah. It's. I mean, I think what we're touching on also is that to set out with the goal to be poetic is such a blade that you can easily slip into sentimentality. Yeah. Yes. But, but that is the danger, I think, that comes with, or the risk that comes with any sort of noble venture is that you can easily fall And, yeah, I do think sentimentality is the death of true Oh, I can't stand...
0: I mean, I sometimes think... I mean, Walmart is sentimentality, isn't it? Those silly Walmart movies and cards. And it saddens me that when people talk about the visual arts, what I call art speak, you never hear people talking about emotions or love. It's a big one. Uh, Feelings because they're associated with these clichés, these sentimental clichés in mass media, mm-hmm. instead of the, what I like to think of as complex emotions that we have in all the great arts, whether it's painting or sculpture or mm-hmm. uh, music, complex emotions which are never just one thing, like melancholy, you know, <laughs> yeah. hope and despair. But you know,
1: the, the part that is often not mentioned enough is that there are cliches the other way as well. They're yes. intellectual cliches. I mean yes. like people that try to be so um, antithetical to sentimentality that they they they, they, they suffer the cliche of being you know falsely rigorous especially yeah. when you come from a field like physics when you, and you come to a lot of the intellectual fields and social sciences or in academia people mm-hmm. people often are so trying to be scientific and so trying to be rigorous that they become caricatures of the of the effort to oppose sentimentality um, so, so there are cliches in all directions. There are cliches in the direction of sentimentality. There are cliches in the direction of intellectualism. There's cliches in being obfuscated and obscure in your writing to seem like you know what you're talking about, when in fact you don't, which is often the case when people are obfuscated and obscure. So doing anything creative in any field is, is bordered by... Not one cliché, or not one type of failure, but many different kinds of failure. If you go too much to the right, you fail one way, to the left, you fail a different way. You move forward, you fail a different way backwards. So anybody who's trying to do anything meaningful is fighting in all directions.
0: I like the way you use the word trying, when people are trying to do this, trying to do that, and then the work is trying, right? So instead of that, you want something more authentic, that flows out, It comes... No, no,
1: that's not what I mean. What I mean is that... Uh,
0: you mean when so it's So trying pretentious. to do something
1: meaningful is yeah. always difficult. Right. It's, and it's always difficult not because something might fall into sentimentality, but it's difficult because it's going to fall in one of 27 different ways of failing. Anything good can fail in many different kinds of ways. If you try too much one direction, it fails that way. If you try the other direction, it fails a different way. So great art, or just like great thinking, it's always, it's always difficult. And whoever approaches with the idea that it's going to flow out of them um, is deluded and doesn't flow out of anyone I've ever seen And even the best, like you know if you take T.S. Eliot's poetry he was probably naturally a better poet than most and yet he worked very hard Robert Frost rewrote and rewrote his poetry I was poetry. just
0: going to bring up the editing you know the old saying that there's no such thing as writing, there's only rewriting is by going over and over. Which brings me to something in your painting process that I find interesting, that you keep redoing your paintings. You erase, you paint, erase, paint, erase. And that to me is very much like a writer, rewriting, 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 until there are hardly any words that were in the original.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you on that, that. Sometimes we get lucky and something comes out easier. Mm-hmm. But usually, if you want to do something that is non-trivial, it takes some effort. That's why I am puzzled by this claim by many contemporary artists that you can actually have your assistants make your work. I know all the oh. arguments for it, and I've heard all the arguments for it. But the reality is that the idea that you have your work so prescribed mm-hmm. that you can tell people, other people, how to make it, if it's that prescribed, that you can tell other people how to make it or what to make of it. It's just never very interesting work, because great artwork is very difficult to prescribe. Yeah. Great, great artwork, like great music, like great dance, always requires discovery in the making. Though, like you mentioned, imagination. Imaginational, imagination provides jumps, unexpected accidents. So anything that is prescribed is mostly an object of the mind a priori, means before you engage the work. So, so so, I think that anything that you can tell somebody else how to make is probably not the best version of it.
0: Oh, I like that. I like that, that the suspicion of work that... Artists can, I don't even know why an artist would want to get someone else to do their work. Most and of them do. You think most do? Maybe even, even
1: Even not only very established artists, but I know many emerging artists who farm out their work to other people. Yeah, I, I mean know. I do
0: know that there are many. I, I yeah. did, did you see the film on Oppenheimer? I did. yeah I mean, did you notice in that that he does no, the work he's Kiefer. got people Kiefer, I'm sorry didn't I say
2: Kiefer? You said Oppenheimer Oh, sorry Which is really interesting though. No, but that's an <laughs> interesting like
0: slow actually yeah. because those are the two movies to me that I keep going back to Oppenheimer <laughs> and um, Kiefer with their art and science for you but they're both on just the scale of their vision but did you notice how he had people obviously moving things and lifting things but he was there doing them
1: all the time. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I think that really? Kiefer has his assistants make most of his work. And I think I, I used to have great admiration for the Kiefer's work of the 70s when it was disruptive and problematic and uncomfortable and not very uh-huh. organized. Mm-hmm. But um, now in my experience. What I see is uh, there's a lot of versions of the same painting, and there's no discovery when you're doing so many versions of the same thing. In my in my okay. view, nothing is that interesting that requires 20 paintings to be made about it.
0: Each one of your paintings, and um, don't you think Lawrence coming here to the studio today and thank you for inviting us, mm-hmm. um, every painting is different. So every painting is its own discovery.
1: Yeah, I mean I I, I think I, I want. In some ways, I want every work to be an end in itself. Um, mm-hmm. Einstein has quoted a saying, I have no patience for scientists who drill with drilling It's easy. Yes. And I think that um, I am trying to, to approach each work not as part of a production line, or rather it's a discovery, each one. And once something is discovered, you don't need to discover it again. You don't need to make 27 versions of, hundreds of versions of cherry trees in blossom, as Damien Hirst might do. Or 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 just um, many of the things that Kiefer does. And also, I think one of the problems I have with, Answer Kiefer is we, we share many of the interesting literature and poetry and art, but I think, I think one of the dangers, even more dangerous than sentimentality, is the danger of, of covering the work with the appearance of seriousness. Um, I think that, you know, it could be too easy to take something that is not transformative and write something on it or do something on it to give it the premature or the color or the, or the veneer of gravitas of strength and seriousness. And, uh, and, and it's different that work that emerges from the journey and produces that gravitas.
2: I mean, both your works, to draw more of this comparison with Kiefer, both your works are sort of have um, the background of a very sort of serious time or a very, um, a, a time and a place that was, uh, had a lot of upheaval for, for people. You know, Anselm's Kiefer has the background of the Second World War, yours has the background of Cuba and the revolution and all the after effects of that as a human being, what it means for you to exist and and how that affects your life.
1: We do, but most of my work is not, I just happen to be working on some things related to Cuba, but um, Kiefer is a historical painter in the traditional demarcations of painting. He's a historical painting interested in large sweeps of history, sort of an epic painter. And I'm interested in the friction between the epic and the domestic. I'm much more interested in how, if I was, for example, working about Germany in 1944, I would be interested in how an individual felt that experience. And Kiefer is interested in, in what happened to these very large movements of history. Um, I'm always interested in how the individual feels something. So, I, I don't think the role of art and the the good place for art is to make any larger um, pontifications about politics or history. I think it's lousier doing that well in um, Germany,
0: they don't like him for now because they, I mean he was important for dealing with the trauma, obviously the trauma of his childhood and during the war but He stayed in the trauma, and and you really got that in the movie. It was fascinating psychologically. um, It seemed he had no relationship with people at all, and that he hadn't moved from the trauma of his childhood. Um, Your work is, positive sounds cliche, but it is more positive. I mean, you're working through emotions. And going back to before I said I like complex emotions, sort of contradictory emotions. There's, there is far more emotions than just trauma in your work, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think emotions, when we try to put it in words, um, you know, we try to imagine something that is either happy or sad. But in, yeah. reality, in reality, most of our emotions are layered and complicated. They are. They are. Um, and they become difficult to translate to words, but you know those emotions when you have them. Sometimes we don't know very well the emotions, but I am... I think, I think fundamentally are certain, in certain way, I'm interested in understanding. Understanding. Um, understanding and understanding, uh, you know, if I, for example, were to try to understand, say, my daughter where she is in a certain afternoon. That understanding requires all kinds of different tools. One tool is understanding her emotional state. The other thing is understanding her condition as a 13-year-old. Another thing is understanding what she might be facing in her life, in reality. And all those understandings go towards a totality of awareness of my daughter because I love her. So, I approach our work in the same way. It's a total understanding of which emotions, as people describe them, are part of the story, but not the total story. Right. Because devotion, inquiry, the resistance of things to give up their secrets um, always requires that you come. to the experience of making an artwork with the totality of intention and, and with as many tools as you can come to it. And of course, the tools that we come to in the work of artists are always very dull and not very good tools, mm-hmm. um, quite unprepared for the task. That's why it always kind of makes me laugh when I hear artists talking with um uh, making a big claims for their skills or their abilities. I think if you're trying to do something meaningful, by necessity your skills are never good enough. And yeah. I think that that's... Um, but But the aim I think is is understanding primarily. It's Understand. not expressing, it's not any of those things.
2: Yeah. One tool that you use in the, your recent body of work um, and Maybe it's a tool. Maybe it's raw material. We're looking at it right now is the um, Boyhood letters that you have. These are the actual boyhood letters of when you're a child to your father Which and when you were showing this work to us. I was like God, that's it's so risky in a way like that mm-hmm. Enrique is giving this such a vulnerable part of himself right. as a childhood letter to his father and putting it on display and and yet talking to you about it, there feels like there's a separateness as well. Like you're standing back from it, looking at yourself as a child, as almost like a, an observer.
1: That's a good. That's a good yeah. way to describe it. Uh, I think that you know a big, a lot is said often about vulnerability and people, as I was talking about, being or not being vulnerable. I I am very interested in the idea of of not really engaging that the vulnerability. I think I think any time that you're being uh, authentic, by the very nature of authenticity, you are both vulnerable and protected from vulnerability oh, by that. just being who you are. So in the case of those letters, um, in the case of those letters. They're really, they're really letters that point to a time and to a certain condition, but I don't explain them. Most of them are covered by by the sea, and what I say about them is the facts, the facts of the history, but but I don't go into kind of theory stories of my memories. My my memories are not my interest. I'm interested if if anything, on memory itself and how we get dislocated and, and dismembered and dissolved. I'm interested in how I can use my history so that I can be involved with things that have great risk and things that I'm invested in so I can never have a professional distance from the work. I think when people study like some topic that may be fashionable, but they don't have skin in the game, then the the work tends to get an antiseptic, um, distant, comfortably distant position. And to me, I'm always interested in work with that distance of being closed. And authenticity means, in my understanding of it, something in which you always have skin in the game, but you're protected from the risk of that skin in the game by the fact that authenticity itself is your protection.
0: I love that. Mm. Mm.
2: Um, One thing, actually, that I remember you saying, uh, this was like 10 years ago, but it's amazing it stuck with me. from your exhibition back then, and um, something I noticed that you brought up in this conversation—a metaphor about drilling. Um, there was Einstein. Right. Yes. And uh, he was quoting. Yes. And in during that conversation ten years ago, you said that you're interested in the holes of philosophy. You're not necessarily necessarily interested in the ideas presented themselves, but the holes within, say, Heidegger or something, or or like, you know, we were, you were talking about the, um, you know, that professionals can get so sort of used to observing something that there's I guess, like a a barrier between the feeling and, and the idea itself. And perhaps that, that drilling and that searching for the holes is where the skin in the game starts to enter. You think that's possible? Yeah, I mean I
1: I, I Herman Hesse um, uh, in, um I remember he was the first person that really brought to me when I was a teenager this idea that well what use is it your knowledge how much of what use is it for you to understand schopenhauer if you live your life without revelation without manifestation of that knowledge if the knowledge is only going to stay in your head or in classes that you give in philosophy then i don't think you really understand it i mean how if you understand nietzsche you're obligated to live a life in that way, um, but if you, much of our relationship to philosophy is one of having the knowledge but not living the knowledge, and I think in the work of art, if you this question of authenticity that I'm referring to is one in which you are not only living the knowledge but a skin in the game means that you have the knowledge and you live the knowledge always together and the holes that you speak about the holes of philosophy the holes of the philosophical system often reveals the heart of the philosophical system and many people say they know philosophy when they know sort of the tenets of Plato or something like that and I think that somebody knows Plato when they understand how Plato processed the material and what Plato failed or the holes that he has then I feel you know Plato
0: I mean, I like that um, coming from philosophy. I sometimes call that disembodied intellectualism. It doesn't work for me because I think there has to be an integration between conceptual ideas and our carnate existence as corporal beings. I like a more corporal intellectualism that can speak to my heart, and can actually make me feel shivery and I can I can look at my hands and feel it. Because we are embodied in this experience. We might be made of stardust, but we're having a human experience and that sensate aspect is very important to me, not just in visual art, but that's why we like music. It makes us move and want to touch things. Um, but poetry can also do that.
2: Yeah. We were um, talking in our last conversation about fairy tales a lot. Oh, yes. comes from uh, a, a background in, in fairy Well, tales I, I used that.
0: to teach fairy tales, I yes. was the fairy tale professor. And, and your, <laughs> your grandfather? Uh, my great great uncle was Sir James Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. Yeah. And it
2: inspired me to look at the Brothers Grimm again. The, uh, <laughs> the language in the Brothers Grimm is written.
0: Oh, it's for, wonderful! I used to use those for teaching writing actually, because it's all mm. in the present tense. Um, it's mm. it's all um, very clear with very no fair. unnecessary words, and that's why children understand it, and that's why it stays with us. I mean, the best writing is always very simple language, but. It takes many, many rewrites to get there, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and fairy tales have an element of archetypal references. Oh, totally. Which is very, very powerful. Yeah. It, it, you know, in some ways, fairy tales show you the armature of life in many ways, and you can, and you know, those things are crucial nodes in the act of living, oh, which I, I find very, I very. I think good.
0: everything great. I mean, I came to fairy tales later after philosophy, but I love them because, and you think, of... Pretty much all great movies are based on some kind of fairy tale. or have that three-part structure, you know, of the there's the challenge, and then there's the journey and the conclusion at the end. But you think how many movies are based on Beauty and the Beast, King Kong, mm-hmm. um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Um, trying to think, how many are based on Cinderella, Pretty Woman? But these are archetypal things. And, and fairy tales and mythologies are overlapped. I used to think that fairy tales were feminine and mythology was masculine. But they're together. And that's why psychologists rely on fairy tales and mythology. Sure. To find the archetypes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I, um, and I want to go back to what you said before about the disembodied... This yes. intellectualism I, am, I, mean, I think that I am not interested in my own life uh, and, and don't really enjoy in other people's when I hear big claims for their knowledge, and, but they, they give themselves a lot of passes in the way they live their lives oh in relation to that knowledge.
0: So it's not or, integrated at all. They're it's not, like it's not only not
1: integrated, it's full of hypocrisy. Yeah. And then, related to this issue this disembodied that you mentioned, is, it's always easier to point at the problems that other people have or society has that are their own. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I can immediately offer a solution to, to a very complicated problem... might not be a good solution but say world peace should be solved this way we should avoid racism by doing this but it's so hard to take on one's own challenges and one's own problems and we live with them for years for decades for the rest of our lives because they are so difficult Mm -hmm. so rather than spend a lot of time doing the work that we need to do Mm -hmm. to become better people Mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time pointing fingers at everyone else. Yeah. And that's a different form of disembodied knowledge. Is a, a knowledge yeah. that is applied towards the ailments of others as opposed to knowledge that's applied to our own ailments.
0: It's also a way of living externally, which is something I have a problem with, of living from the outside, you know, always pointing outside. The are the problem, if they hadn't done that to me, You know, they've got this fault. Instead of, um, I like art, which comes from the inside and then is from the internally, and then we see it outside. Uh, Which brings me to something else I'd like to discuss with you, Enrique, Lawrence, empathy. 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 Because I think empathy is the answer to that disembodied intellectualism we don't like. If, If we want that kind of integration of sort of living on a high vibration, um, centrally and in our perception, that high vibration. I think the glue, I'm thinking about it, I don't know this, is empathy. Your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I think, you know, I mean, at the core of to limit the conversation to, great, to to art. I think the core of great works of art is is empathy, but an empathy that is arrived at by recognizing the commonality between all of us. Um, that my suffering and your suffering, it may, maybe for different reasons, but I, I, I ultimately it you is felt similar. That, you it felt is, that emotion, yeah, you've gone and, through that. And, and um, loneliness. Uh, for different you, reasons. You, yeah, you, different people maybe for different motivations, but ultimately it is felt with a similar heart.
0: I mean, a lot of great people have talked about artist empathy, and I think the Greeks even called it empathera, that that was one of the elements. But
1: Although I have to interrupt you there. Mm-hmm. I'm always very, very nervous about equations. Art ah. is empathy. Like ah. that is joining those things. Yes, art is many okay. things. Empathy is just one of them. Yes,
0: art, art can be many things. You're right. And the Greeks did understand that. That empathy was... I didn't mean to say art is empathy. That part of art is empathy. And the Greeks talked about... Um, there has to be the muse, the imagination. But there also has to be the, techni, the technique. But... Coming back to empathy, do um, you think the artist has to have felt that emotion, but then when they allow the viewer to feel it for themselves, but not the emotion exactly as the artist felt it?
1: You know, I think, I think what happens is um, art is a, in great art. And, and, and I try to make that qualifier because it's very difficult mm-hmm. to talk about art. There's so much, right. so much range that if you try to describe some terrible thing that you might see in a thrift store versus Leonardo, you're talking about completely different enterprises. Mm-hmm. But um, great art is a total experience that can be faceted into anything. It's, it includes... Um, includes the mind, includes the body, it includes many ways that we feel things. Um, and, and it destroys to an extent our separation from the world, which leads to empathy. Um, so, so that kind of experience, which is the kind of experience I'm interested in when I look for art, Mm. Uh, in fact, for me, I can use that type of experience as a definition of art. Only when those that totality of unstoppable power that comes from the work occurs, then I would call that art. Otherwise, I won't. Um, I would call it just paintings.
0: I like something. unstoppable power.
1: Yeah. So, so that yeah. which is Marina Svataeva, mm-hmm. um, the Russian poet. She, she. To, to had a beautiful writing about the relationship between art and power, but not power as used by Foucault on the idea of power as social dynamic, but power in kind of an emergence, a certain force within the work of art.
0: So. I like that because the, our notions of power right now are so fucked, aren't they? I mean, we're, we've got Putin, threatening us with nuclear war. We've got Trump, who wants to be powerful. Um, and it's 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 the wrong kind of power. It's power for the wrong reason. I mean, the power for good, the power of art is different. And, of course, you um, had an exhibition based on Virgil's The Tears of Things, and that was from the Aeneid and right. the Trojan, the, the hero, the soldier, who looks at a painting and he cries because it makes him think of the people that he he lost. And people have argued about the meaning of that line, but that that really was about the power of art, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is uh, the, 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 the power of the experience um, to make all of that vivid again um, yeah and um, but, but what's interesting about for me from that line is that things themselves have tears and this is not the idea of the pathetic fallacy of projecting human emotions onto objects but really the very, the, the very at the very at the very heart of things things contain you know that that entire history including the tears and the laughter and the longing. I mean you just had to grab a handkerchief of course would project onto it mm-hmm. but but the, it's us projecting onto things and things having emotions as far as humans are concerned are the same thing.
2: With your recent body of work is a lot about the ocean too and we were just in, in, mm-hmm. in your space and talking about the ocean and talking about Moby Dick, and as you're talking about tears, I remembered a, a moment just now where you turned to us and told us a line from it. That was oh yes, that the
0: the, 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 ti- the ocean couldn't contain one tear. Okay. Yeah. What, that was wonderful.
2: What is the quote? Again?
1: So the um, it's from uh, a chapter called the Symphony in Moby Dick, hmm. and it says um, the whole of the Pacific couldn't hold that. Wee little tear from Ahab. Um, but the idea was that this this tear that comes out of this hardened, um, ungodly, godly man, as Melville described him, is so vast. There's so much loneliness and so much pain and so much human dimension in it that is. The infinite quality of all of that can be can be absorbed by the ocean, and what Melville is pointing to, I think, is that that the dimension of human longing and the dimension of the human heart and pain and as well as joy um, can be contained, can be can be can be held can be even understood. The dimensions are too big for us to comprehend, always out of reach for us. And of course not even the Pacific can hold it, even though it's a tiny tear.
0: It's a wonderful image, isn't it? That the Pacific yeah. couldn't hold one tear. It
2: is. Yeah. It is the, I mean the ocean itself is is an object, like like you're talking mm-hmm. about how we project things onto objects. But the ocean itself in your in your recent paintings is an object that's both a separating force and one that I feel sort of swells great feeling, human emotion, in both at the same time. It's like a barrier. Um, and you can speak about this, the nature of that subject better than I, but it's both a barrier and uh, an instigator for something more.
1: Sure, I mean, when you stand at the shore, it's always both things. It's a limit of how far you can go, but it's also an invitation to, to take on towards that horizon. And what is coming from that horizon, always an expectation at the edge of the horizon. So, so the ocean is both a limit and a barrier and a possibility. Um, and, and, in many ways for that reason, it speaks about our human condition, that everything that is a barrier and obstacle is always the way, it's always the possibility revealed itself in a different way. Um, and I think the, the ocean, the ocean can play that role and, um, Loner corn has a, has a line in one of his songs, um, Every, um, every man will be a sailor until the sea shall free them. So it's like you're condemned to be a sailor in that sea until the, the sea finally, the, the very thing that contains you is the only thing that can free you. And, and that freedom comes um. through that containment, not by, not by um, avoiding it. Um, and I think that that's very powerful or, or sometimes like Dante's great line on the opening of the Inferno, where he says, in the middle of my life I came to a forest dark and I took the path around because the straight one was not available to me. That's just Took the more beautiful. complex one. Yeah,
0: but I think that's a lovely place to end. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to... Sorry?
2: Well, I mean, the, the beginning of Dante as well, I think, Right. The first line of, of Virgil's is, I lost my way. And there's something in, in the other body of work that you have about this lost child, which is Robert Frost's child, cow And something of a fairy tale that's sort of devoid of a structure as well. It's like the essence of a fairy tale But I think where that fairy tale leads is not necessarily a morality tale or has, you know, it doesn't have a point to it necessarily that you can sum up in a sentence.
0: Fairy tales don't, well, they're about the journey of our life. And so the hero or heroine has to get lost on the path. Sure. They're always on a path where they get lost at some point and then they find... Clues, but they do make their way back home. Sure. With the wisdom and the... they changed, also they're changed by their experiences, which is what you were talking about before and why we were talking about embodied intellectualism, that we have to be changed as people by the things that happen to us. Otherwise, it's pointless, isn't it?
2: Well, the, the object that's within... that—if If there is a narrative in, in that story of... Um, Robert Frost and Carol Frost, and the object to which it serves as a symbol that we project, uh, you know, mm-hmm. meaning onto is the apple. So, how do you uh. feel that Carol, if he does change, is changed by the apple of of his father, right? His father's apple.
1: You know that one of the difference between fairy tales and life is chaos. You know, fairy tales organize life. They give you a structure. Mm-hmm. You know, you get lost and then you get found. Mm-hmm. Um, but life, we can impose narratives in it after the fact. But one of what, like the chaos of Carol Frost committed suicide, defies our efforts to organize it. There's no way to kind of organize it. Even though you can summarize in a quick narrative line, he committed suicide, the the chaos, the disorder that brings into life, um, resists our efforts to order it, which is what fairy tales do. So fairy, fairy tales give us, for example, structures to order what is ultimately the disorder of life and the absurdity of life. So... So in the case that you mentioned the apple, the apple that joins Carol and Robert Frost, the apple that has this long, long history in human in human myth, that apple is so loaded with charge, with with ways of reading that story of apple and of of Robert and Carol. Um, that at the end, just like a great work of art, it sits there with all those possibilities of meaning and yet many secrets within it. And all we can do is point to it, point to the amount of charge that is in that apple and, and speak a little bit about some of the ways in which meaning comes about in that apple. But we can never explain the apple. We can never take that symbol and say, this is what it is. If we can, but it's probably never interesting. Um, and I have been thinking about this question of Robert Frost and Carol Frost before I have children, after having children, and, and I'm not any closer to understand the mystery of that, of that orchard for them.
2: So you don't know what meaning the apple would have to carry or might have had to cow? No, I mean, I,
1: and you, yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because we, in fact, never have a real understanding of what the meaning for anyone of anything is, even after they have told us. Because even when even when somebody have told us, we have to trust that they know the meaning of things for them, and things are always very layered. So everything that I'm talking about, Carol Robert Frost, should be immediately understood as just my projections onto a life that I don't
0: understand. So do you have, what meaning do you draw from the folk telling, the Hebrew folk of Adam and Eve in the garden and eating the apple?
1: Right, so, so that's a, a very good question that I think brings us back to the beginning of the question of art. Um, I can speak for two days about all the meanings that it brings up and possibilities and counter meanings and at the end of two days not be any closer to, <laughs> to, to, to it. And the reason why is because the meaning at moments depends on the way the apple is held by Eve and offered to Adam or at the uh-huh. moment that they whether the snake was looking this way or that way yeah. or whether the apple was red or yellow or whether it was a, an act of defiance or an act of of, of charity and so on. So this is why these images are so charged and give us so much to think about and talk about for millennia because but, they cannot be entirely... Um, explain away no matter where intellectual machinery is. They're always incomplete.
0: Beautiful. Thank you both. Thank I think we could much. talk all day.
2: We could. <laughs> Thank you very much. Leave it incomplete. <laughs> What's that? We'll leave it incomplete. Yes. <laughs>
0: I because I remember when. Um